All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck doodles? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. How are you? How's your head? How are your hands? How's your toe? How's your feet? How's your gut? How's your gut garden? Are you feeding your gut garden with probiotics so your poop is good? What are you doing for yourself? Before it gets away from me and before I forget how to pronounce his name properly, I would like to say that Kelifa Sene is here. Kelifa is a journalist, a staff writer at The New Yorker. He used to work at The New York Times. He writes about music. Years ago, uh, the guy interviewed me at The New Yorker Festival, 2015, and then uh, I hadn't seen or heard from him because I don't reach it. I'm out of the fucking loop on just about everything. It's amazing I know what's going on. Maybe I don't. I only seem to know the bad stuff. Is there anything good happening? There is. There is. George Clooney walked right up to me and talked to me. Now, I know some of you think, hey, man, does that still, like, you know, you've been doing this a long time. You talk to a lot of big celebrities. I mean, come on, dude. Does that still have an impact on you? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, there are certain movie stars that are real fucking movie stars. They, they have the effect that a movie star would have on a human. Walked right up to me. Said, hey, Mark, how you doing? Walked right up to me. I know some of you are like, so what? Sure, you can think that. But has George Clooney ever walked up to you and said, hey, your name? Has he? Mm-hmm. And went on a minute. I'll tell you. But wait, I, I got distracted. Kelifa Sene is a, a guy who wrote a book. It's called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. He goes through all the genres of music that have defined and dominated the past 50 years. Rock, R&B, country, punk, hip-hop, dance, and pop. And I thought this was sort of up my alley, but I don't know about you, but I see a book like that and I'm like, maybe I need to learn something. Like there's, I definitely, I don't know that much. You know, I buy a lot of records. I'm, um, I'm always late to the party. I've missed almost everything. There's a huge chunk of time between like 1989 and maybe 2000 where I'm just all comedy all the time, not really focusing on music and then shifted a bit once I started getting into vinyl again and re and I, I'm just, it's all new whole education, the whole world of music is new to me, basically. And I've been playing catch-up, but when I read this book, there's a whole lot of black music that I just, I don't know the history of. I don't know the nuances of. I don't know the different subgenres of R&B, hip-hop, when it became soul, when it became smooth jazz. There's just a lot of black music I don't know about. It bothers me. I know... Some jazz, I know some hip-hop, I know some R&B, I know some soul, but yeah, mostly what everybody knows, and it makes me feel limited because I like new music. I don't know anything about uh, dance, to be honest with you. I know very little about hip-hop in the big picture, and I only know about old country for the most part, except for a few people. What I'm trying to say is, I'm a fucking dummy. I'm not a poser, I'll admit it. I have a lot of records, I listen to a lot of stuff, but I don't know how to contextualize anything. And sometimes when you read these kind of books, you're like, all right, this is your context. You decided it, Califa Sene. So let's lay it out. Does it make sense? Is it correct? But I learned some stuff. So that's going to happen. The George Clooney thing. Do you want me to talk about George Clooney? 
I was invited to a screening of his new movie, The Tender Bar. It's a, it's a, a kind of a coming of age, rites of passage movie about this kid. Ty Sheridan is the kid. Uh, ben Affleck is the uh, the bartender uncle. Christopher Lloyd's in it as the old man. Saw him at the screening. I met that Ty Sheridan kid. He's a nice kid. He enjoys the show. But I was just there to, to watch it. And then I'm going to the bathroom. Never met George Clooney. I don't know. This guy talk about him a lot. And I, I don't know how many times I've talked about Michael Clayton on this show. And I don't know how many times I've talked about uh, that he's like a real movie star that's got the real chops. He can do the business. He can do the acting thing. And he's a fucking movie star. Like, you know, like old timey. But whatever. I'm just walking over to the bathroom and I notice he's walking in with his, with a group of people. And he's just walking in the door and I'm over to the side walking to the bathroom and I kind of look over and I catch his eye and he goes, hey, Mark, how you doing? And I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm pretty good, George. Thank you. Thank you for asking you. He's like, I'm good. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm excited to see the movie. And he goes, it's light. And I'm like, you know what? Light's good. I could use light. And he, looked, he said, uh, yeah, I, I bet you could. I bet you could. And I was like, wow, he knows something about me. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the details are, but but uh, I imagine that would be a proper response to me, no matter what he knew. You seem to need something light. Uh, but uh, I was excited. Is, is that wrong? I was uh, not starstruck, but I was like, uh, how does George Clooney know me? Is that weird? I'm not going to assume anything, but there's still part of me that doesn't understand right now how George Clooney knows who I am. Is that weird? Huh? Is it? Yeah, Clooney. Great actor. Seemingly a nice guy to me. Very exciting. And there's one line in the movie. It won't spoil anything, but it spoiled my fucking brain for a day. Not in a terrible way, but it forced me to have a realization I don't know. I'm I'm certainly ready to have it. But I was surprised at uh, how much it affected me. And it's a throwaway line. And it has nothing to do with the movie per se. You know, I've been processing grief for the last year and a half since uh, Lynn Shelton passed away. And you get a year out and you start to feel like, okay, I'm okay. And I am okay. But then something happens to, it just opens up the portal. And it was really this simple line in the movie where he's describing, this young kid is describing a, a college romance. And he, he was just talking about how, why he might like the girl he thought he loved. And he said, uh, she gives me hope somehow. And it was nebulous, right? And then, like, I don't know why it stuck with me, but all of a sudden I was thrown back into thinking about my, my relationship because I've been struggling with something. And that is, you know, have I grown at all? You know, am I a different person outside of just getting older and a little more exhausted with who I am in terms of bad habits or patterns of thought? Uh, just the... The, 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 the fact of giving zero fucks as you, as you get older. I talked to, uh, to Raji P. Henson the other day, and she said, all my fucks are behind me. So there is, I like that, that, the way she said that. You'll hear it when she says it later, whenever we put that up. But, but there, is, there was something that I was trying to identify with this hope thing because it struck me. 
And, you know, I've been on the road a lot and I've been in hotel rooms a lot and I've been, you know, with my brain a lot. And I'm starting to realize, like, not a lot has changed in terms of, like, I feel like I am once again, you know, uh, kind of resentful and, 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 uh, you know, certain types of insecurity and self, self, self loathing are, are happening again. And a lot of things that, you, you know, that, that I felt like I was moving past. And obviously, some of you listening to me are like, no, Mark. We all hear it all the time. Nothing has changed. But there was a window there when I had surrendered to my love for Lynn and we began to engage it where I, 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 I could feel like, you know, this made sense. Her and I made sense. The way our personalities were together, our age together, you know, and the possibilities of a future where, where I could see a full life ahead of me and sharing it with somebody else. I could see it, you know, and it and it, it seemed good. It seemed rich. It seemed like a full thing in my mind, and and that was that all is gone. And I think that's what it triggered, you know, uh, that she gave me hope. But it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't hanging anything on her. It wasn't like I I was, you, you know, like uh like putting that like this person's going to save me or anything. It was the idea of who we were together. And what that could look like, you know, gave me like, it felt like hope to me when I saw it and I saw it a lot. It led to my decision to sort of give in to the relationship and to my feelings. And I've said before that, that there has been, there's people that, that knew her for years that had a whole life with her and I did not. And it was this, this sense of like, you know what, the rest of life is going to be okay with this person, no matter what happens. And I guess that's, I guess it feels like hope to me. And I think now that like, it's totally dug in that that is not going to happen. On top of that, whatever anger I might feel or whatever sadness I might feel around this loss. But now I'm back to my own patterns of thought. You know, the small circle of life that I live in with myself. And I have to figure out, you know, how, how to open that back up again. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to bum anybody out. I saw a bunny in my yard just now, like just now. I like uh, ten minutes ago, I saw a bunny, and I had to look up whether or not I could feed him cauliflower. That's a whole story into itself, a whole fucking story. Look, right now, I'm going to talk to Kelifa Sene. I want to learn. Uh, it's called Major Labels: A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. It's now available wherever you get books. We talk it out. What was the event we did? It was the New Yorker Festival. Okay. So we sat on a stage. I interviewed you. Yeah. I accidentally made you cry. You did? Yeah. But what did you do? I played some, (laughs) I played a couple clips because 
from the show, I played oh. a couple clips of you and Louie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, yeah. that was that was a little emotional before but it was, before uh, before the fallout. Before the fallout, right? But yeah. you know that was less interesting even now to me than like your history with him and yeah, just showing people what this show is capable of. If sure. there were some people in the audience who didn't know, so right? That was, I was I heard from a lot of people who loved the event and yeah, I thought yeah, it was good. It was fun. Yeah, I mean you know you never know what's going to happen with those events. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, you don't. And you know I get yeah sometimes you get a lot of the same questions and uh, if I cried then it must have uh, been a little uh, uh, around the side hopefully it wasn't from boredom and frustration <laughs> no I, I definitely don't cry because of that I'm more likely to get angry <laughs> so you did it you did you did the book about everything in music <laughs> except for you 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 smartly said uh, not gonna fuck with jazz <laughs> You got to draw some lines. I'll tell you, it was a it was a grim day when I sat down and had an empty Google Doc. Yeah, and I wrote chapter one, rock and roll. Yeah, I, that, that was, was that grim. Was that grim for you? That was not a happy feeling <laughs> to realize I'd gotten myself into something like that. Well, I mean, when did uh, when did the work start? I mean, was this a pandemic book? No, no, it was. It was. It, it finished during the pandemic, but it started you know a year or so before. I yeah. think I thought I could like bang it out in a year. This. A history of music, <laughs> of modern music. It's called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. Well, at least you broke it down. Yeah, yeah, I got to break it down for people. I mean, you know, on the other hand, this is what I've been doing kind of since the 90s. I've been obsessed with music. I know. Well, what's the story? I, You know, you do have, because I know in the beginning of the book, you do have, uh, I don't know if, I don't want to use an insensitive word, but uh, you have sort of a, a, a an exotic past. Yes, yes, exotic. Uh, uh, and wh where were you born? Was, was that was the insensitive word you yeah. were worried? I thought you were going to say tribal or something. <laughs> No, I don't. I, I don't know what descriptors are okay. I mean, it is exotic to me. It's exotic to me too. My, my father grew up dodging hippos in a river. My father came from a little village, in on a little island in a little country called Gambia in the really? west in West Africa. Yeah, dodging hippos. Yeah, because he said that was the scariest animal when they'd go swimming. Well, they're like the fucking dinosaurs, not snakes. And well, no, and hippos don't even eat people. Right? No, so they're it, just big. You just don't want to get. And yeah, I guess you they, don't want to. If, if they kill you, it's just because they're assholes. Or, or they're, they didn't see you. No, no, no. They see you. It's, it's, they're, they're known to be very cantankerous, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. The hippo. The hippo. Are there still many left? I think there are hippos. I don't think the hippo is endangered. Oh. Well, that's good to know. I've never seen a hippo. Have you? <laughs> I've, I've, yeah, I've seen zoo? a hippo like in a safari driving around. You went on one? Yeah, like a, a photograph safari, not a gun safari. Right, of course. Yeah. And you you went on one of those? Yeah. Where, where your dad's from? No, actually, my mother is from South Africa, and uh -huh. so I've been on some safaris there in South Africa. See, now that to me, like, that that's exotic to me. That's, it's also exotic. My mother's white, so it's a different kind of exotic. White South African? White South African. My father's black from Gambia. They met in London. They're both academics. It's interesting, because it's like, those are the spectrums of, <laughs> of both of the those races. Sure. I, if you're thinking white South African, I'm assuming Dutch heritage? No, the other side, the English side. Oh, okay. Yeah. But still, white, white. White, yes, absolutely. So they were both academics? They're both academics. Your mom was, what was her academic? My, my mother uh, taught Yale students how to speak Zulu. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> so if you know any Yale students who know how to speak Zulu, it's probably because of my mother. Did they both leave? How did they meet? They met uh, at graduate school oh, okay. in London. My father... Uh, died a couple years ago he was a historian of religion 
he was grew up in a Muslim country and converted to Christianity like as a teenager huh. and then made his life studying the history of Christianity and Islam. Well, it seems that Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven <laughs> Genres is sort of a study of religion. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> musical religion. And, you know, my my musical religion was punk rock. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's. It seems like it's true for a lot of people or a surprising number of people, given that punk rock itself is like not all that popular. I guess. But like, what was your dad? What was the music, you know, your dad came up with? I mean, what I mean, was there influence there? Because I've recently been kind of reengaging with the music that my father loved, mm -hmm. it, but it's different than yours. I what imagine. was it? Well, like lately I've been playing some musical performances and I've been doing, you know, songs that he really liked. It was mostly that 50s rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, he was a big Buddy Holly guy, but he, you know, he liked, uh, you know, the uh, not the coasters, but the diamonds. And there, there's just music from being a kid and driving in the station wagon with the American Graffiti soundtrack, you right. know, and that was his music. Right. But uh, he seemed to be pretty partial to Buddy Holly. Well, I had, yes, so that was not exactly what was playing in my, my household. My father, you know, there's traditional music in the Gambia, and his his family, my family, I guess, would be traditionally the patrons of the arts. Yeah. So there'd be griots singing songs of praise yeah. about people like us. My, yeah. fa my father actually named me for one of the, for two of the most famous compositions in that tradition. Huh. My name is Kelifa, and so there's a composition called Kuruntu Kelifa and one called Kelifa Ba about this great warrior. So there was that tradition. Yeah. Um, I, I called it finger chopping music when I was a kid because it sounded to me like these people were chopping their fingers off and then screaming about it. Really? Because it's this very kind of intense keening sound. I mean, it's amazing. So but it's it, kind of punk rock. Yes, I mean, I, I realized that later, right? <laughs> depending on the thing about punk rock is depending on how you define it, just about anything could be punk rock. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it becomes sort of a, a, a like it, it's not just about music. No, what, what the griots? No, the, the punk, punk rock. When you say something's punk yes. rock, well, it's a comparative term, right? Yeah. Punk rock means means rebellion, defiance, fuck you. Right. So something in a sense, can only be punk rock in relation to something else. So when do you, so where do you, where were you born? I was born in England. Yeah. I lived for a couple of years in Ghana where my dad was teaching and then he got a job in Scotland. He's teaching religion in Ghana? History of religion at the university there. Yeah. And then he got a job at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So I lived in Scotland How for a few you? years. Do you remember? Yeah, from two to when I was five. Uh, mm. And then so, I moved to America when I was five yeah. with a Scottish accent. <laughs> Skinny, brown-skinned, big-headed kid. One of the worst accents, I well, might add. I, th I, feel like it's, I feel like it's considered charming. It is. It's got a role to it. I remember someone from Scotland telling me that a lot of, in the UK, a lot of call centers were located in Scotland because other people found the accent charming and it's sort of... Yeah, uh, it's it's sort of uh, disarmed people who wanted to yell at a company if they heard a Scottish voice at the end of the line. <laughs> it it soothed them. Yeah, but I don't think that as a five year old newly arrived in America, I'm not sure I had a soothing effect on my classmates and peers. Yeah, but I had, you know, I think like a lot of immigrants, I had this sense of wanting to figure out what America was and what was happening in America. So what year, like, what are we talking? I don't know how old you are. You're I'm, younger than me. I'm 45, so I arrived in 1981 as a five-year-old. That's when I graduated high school. <laughs> so you're there. Where'd you move? Massachusetts. Moved to Cambridge. My dad got a gig at Harvard. Really? So yeah. you're in Cambridge. Yeah. Like, what street? 
Uh, well, for the first year, we lived across the road from the Divinity School on Francis Avenue. I know Avenue. exactly where that is. Yeah, at, at a place called the Center for the Study of World Religions. I walked by there because my cousins, they used to live right up on Spark Street. Oh, okay. Right next yeah. to that school, sure. the Brown and Nichols School. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, and then uh, near the uh, near the Star Market, probably. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right there, yeah. Kind of by the Star Market. But it's by that fish store that's like right up, see Sparks goes into Huron, is it, maybe? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Doesn't Stars matter. Cambridge. And, well, um, you know, Star Star Market and Stop and Shop were like the two supermarkets. Yeah, Star Market. And I remember when I discovered Star, Punk Rock. Star Market. I remember getting super into the Sex Pistols. Yeah. And they have a bunch of, you know, there's the one album and there's a bunch of other recordings. Yeah. And they're playing Roadrunner. Yeah, which is a Jonathan Richmond song. And they're they're singing about the Stop and Shop. Stop and Shop, right. I remember right. being like, how? Yeah. Why? And then it was later I realized like, oh, Jonathan Richmond was from Boston. Like, right. I, yeah. That whole album, that, did that record factor in? It was already probably, you know, it was already out and gone. Did you, did no, the Modern Lovers factor in? Not until later. So, you know, I was kind of listening to regular stuff and rock and roll and kind of got into At the five? Like, no, no, no. When I got older. Okay. When I was a kid, I was listening to more hip hop because yeah. that was the, it was the mid 80s by that well, I point. I like that. What, you talk about that in the book because honestly, you know, I one thing I realized from reading as much of the book as I read, I, I tended to, like, I feel like I'm good on country. Like, and I also was sort of cramming, but sure. I feel like I'm okay on country. I, I did realize he sort of like you know used uh, Dolly as a through line, which I liked, but uh, but like I I'm very unclear, and I have a lot of records, and I consider <laughs> myself you know a music guy, but I'm not a music nerd, but I'm not, and I don't claim to know everything, but I always am like I go to the record store and I'm like, man, I need some more uh, black stuff, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Not meaning I'm, vinyl. You're talking about music. no. I mean, right. no. I need more black music because, like, I know blues okay, mm -hmm. and I know some early uh, R and B. But I get lost, and I do have records. Yeah, you know, I got James Brown records, Curtis Mayfield records. I got the OJ's record that you talk about, mm -hmm. which I love, and I've got, but not much hip hop. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't. Just because it wasn't the music I specifically grew up with, I don't know how it all fits together. Right. So. This was very helpful to me, and I was very sort of like into the R&B chapter and then the hip-hop chapter, but I needed that education because I don't know those nuances. Right. But anyway, sorry. So, you yeah, well, I, I kind of wanted to do I kind of wanted to do a friendly thing and an unfriendly thing in this book, and the friendly thing is just to sort of give my view of how all this stuff fits together and how do we get from this to that. And it is your view, and it's not something that hasn't been attempted before. Right. Sure. But, okay, but you grew up hip-hop was actually appealing to almost you know pre-teen kids oh yeah i mean if you're you know i'm i'm however old i was eight years old or something they're 10 years old in 1986 yeah you've got like run dmc and the beastie boys now from a musical point of view those run dmc records were super radical they stripped everything out of the music and it's just going to be a drum machine and two guys shouting at yeah, you like yeah, a yeah. really radical thing but as a kid i didn't realize that wasn't how you were previously supposed to make music i was right. like this stuff's amazing made sense to your brain yeah and it's funny and you yeah. can memorize right. what they're doing yeah. and teach you how to talk so so i got into that and i was then i you know got into some like normal rock and roll beatles and stones and stuff and then well you grew up in cambridge so you had to where were you going to school I was I was going As to I went to school in uh, at public schools in Cambridge, Arlington, and Belmont, and then I went to Shady Hill, which is a private school in Cambridge. But all those like that's like townie land. So you're kind of getting all of it, right? Yeah, but I was kind of too little for a lot of those divisions to apply. Like, you know, when you're 10, 11 years old, it's just like a bunch of kids. kids. And yeah, they're sure. kind of listening to what's on the radio or like what's right. cool. What, like what's on what, BCN? 
yeah, BCN or whatever the the pop station was at yeah. the time. I, so it wasn't, but I didn't really get deep into music until uh, around my 14th birthday and a friend of mine gives me a punk rock mixtape. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. So now your dad's teaching at Harvard at four- Harvard, yeah, and then he moves to Yale and we moved down to Connecticut. Oh, but so but you're at Harvard at fourteen and someone gives you the punk rock mixtape. By then we're living in Connecticut and my oh. friend gives me this punk rock mixtape. What's on it? Uh what is on it? Uh some dead Kennedys, yeah. some some Fugazi, some right. sex pistols. Oh, I yeah. remember the exploited sex and violence. Yeah. Um the song where those are the only words, sex yeah. and violence. Yeah. Um and it just, it, it really did blow my mind. And I kind of have gone back and tried to figure out why it blew my mind. And? Um, because, and one of the things I realized was like the the songs on the radio and on MTV that yeah. I kind of rejected when I got into punk yeah. were really good. Yeah. Like if you listen to Vogue by Madonna or Poison by Belle Biv DeVoe, these are really interesting productions. These are really important moments in musical history. Yeah, but you don't know that's how you're going yes. to look at music. Exactly right. And, and what punk teaches me is I think that you can have opinions about music uh-huh. that you can say like no i'm setting all this other stuff aside and i'm gonna choose this but ultimately like i i, I did a little research that you know and you, i guess you wrote a thesis in college about uh, about the idea of of the dominance of of rock Right. I, wrote, I wrote a I wrote an essay at the at the New York Times in, in 2004 about rockism. Right. So-called. Okay. Is that where it was? Yeah. But the thing is, is what I realized when reading this book is that a lot of this, a lot of the reasons people engage with music, certainly when you're younger, is because it is magic, mm-hmm. and you can't quite explain why it moves you. I mean, as you get more sophisticated and you understand things, right. but but ultimately, and the weird thing about the idea of rockism is like, it turns out that you might have been a little off because it seems like some of those songs will last forever. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, or, or yes, yeah, so it'll last as long as we do anyway. Right? Yeah, forever. <laughs> For, I mean, there's, I think Johnny B. Good's in space. Right, right. But, but, but it's a weird phenomenon that I always say as a comic, that you know, people don't want to hear jokes more than twice. Right, right. But exactly they'll hear right. music yeah. over and over again for yeah. their entire life, and it will change with their life. Right. So it's magic. But it's magic. But it's also there's a it's magic. But that makes it sound a little more friendly than it is. And and the unfriendly thing I wanted to yeah. do in this book w- was talk about how part of loving music often means hating music, means hating something else, means hating, hating what some other people listen to. You gotta to. fight. You gotta say, I don't wanna be like those people, I wanna be like these people. And then as you get older, you're sort of like, it's all okay. Well, yes, to a certain extent, but I'm not sure that those impulses to like be part of a community, mm. and that means to not be part of some other community, I'm not sure that ever really goes away. I mean, I think any, I think to me, a genre is a musical community. And to me, any community is defined by inclusion and exclusion. So this is how you, and you approach- need a, And you need a bit of both. You appro- That's how you approached your history? Was that, you know, that you were going to to figure out who the prime movers were in each of these genres and subgenres and then, you know, figure out how that defined the community. Yeah. And figure out how people think about these things. I mean, you know, rock and roll, like what does rock and roll mean in the 70s? And yeah. How is that changing? How, how does it come to be that, like, if you say you like rock and roll in the 80s, like maybe that means Motley Crue? Right. No, I get it. How does how does rock morph or evolve right. from the beginning? And and but I, I thought it was sort of sort of you know what I always found is interesting is that you've got to judge it against whatever sense of community you have or who the audience is, you've got to de- you've got to define it against the charts. 
So well, like the charts are indicators. The charts are indicators of how many people are listening, and and that's you know that's the game that a lot but of the also, record companies and, are playing, and how it's defined, right? As a business, yeah, right, because they shift the names of the charts. And like for example, yeah, you're wearing the Aretha shirt. You played. Yeah. Jerry Wexler in the Aretha movie. It, how come you didn't mention Wexler? I, I thought he came up with the the, the term rhythm and blues as Re- a genre. I kind of somewhat arbitrarily start this book around 1970. So there's okay. some earlier stuff, but the idea is like the last 50 years. My idea was that like we sort of have an idea of this big explosion that happened in the 60s. Right. And I wanted to say something about, well, what happened since then? How did everything get so fragmented and weird right. in the past half century? Right. And Aretha Franklin's a great example because she's this amazing talent. And yet throughout her career, she maintains an obsession with the R&B charts. Right. right? Throughout her career, she's like, well, who's number one on R&B? How can I get a number one R&B hit? Like, yeah. she was really interested in making R&B hits, I think partly because that was one way to measure how am I resonating within this musical community? Yeah. And and even someone which like- Which at that time was the black audience. Yes, which which kind of still is in, in the world of R&B. Uh, well, I thought a, that a was, audience. for me, like very engaging. I, I, because I didn't know how, you know, when you talk about like this ongoing arguments within mm-hmm. the R&B yeah. community, I'm yeah. sort of like, what, there is? Yeah. <laughs> Who's, right. Who's having them? Right. The idea, <laughs> the idea in the 1980s that people would look yeah. at, at Prince and Michael Jackson and be like, are these guys sellouts? Yeah. That that's so far from the way that we think of Prince but today. But who's but is that an academic conversation or is that a is that like a, you know a on the ground conversation? It, it's both, right? Yeah. Like when Whitney Houston gets booed at the Soul Train Awards yeah. because she's viewed by that audience as too pop and not R&B enough. That reflects something real in how she was perceived, right? When Whitney Houston first comes out and is called the prom queen of right. soul, yeah. right? There's yeah. this idea that like, oh, is she a quote unquote real R&B singer or is she just making pop music? And what is the difference? Right. And I think R&B is a good example because you have this push and pull within the genre. You have people who really want pop success, who really want to reach a big audience and you know make more money yeah. and, have, and, and make a bigger impact. Right. But also, they want to feel like they're still accepted by the R and B audience. Well, let's talk. Let's figure out how to talk about the the actual uh, expanse of the book. You know, in relation to your life. So mm-hmm. at fourteen, you're kind of doing the punk thing, and that's it. it. And like literally, I put my Rolling you Stones can... tapes <laughs> tapes aside, and I'm like, I'm never listening to this band again. It, really? Yeah. yeah so, the, it, it, but that was that's that, how it felt to me. It felt you were like going to fight. You're going to fight the fight. It felt, well, yeah, or it wasn't even, I was going to like create my own thing and I was going to exist in this punk world and the rest of the world was crap. So that was a life definer. Oh, absolutely. Like you you shifted your identity. Absolutely. It's like, I'm not, like that stuff is normal and the punk stuff is weird and has integrity and is interesting and is scary and is cool and that's where so I So you're be. in Connecticut mm-hmm. and you're sitting there like you're getting what, uh, Doc Martens? Yeah, but I never had, I was never that deep into the lifestyle. Like I had my Doc Ma- Martens, I had some weird hair. Yeah. But it was mainly just being obsessed with records and, and trying to read about records and trying to learn about anything I could and saving up money to buy more. I say records. It was actually cassettes mainly. But uh-huh. Saving up re- money to buy more music. Were you young to enough to more. where you had to sort of like uh, it was hard to get those records? Absolutely. It was yeah. hard to even find out which ones to get. I you, think, had to, you had to have some fanzine connections? Yes. Or you had to guess based on what record label the thing was on. Right. People talk about, people talk about uh, gambling addiction and they yeah. say part of the addiction is losing as much as winning. Right. And there was something like that with record shopping, right? right. You pay your 10 bucks. Yeah, you don't got to tell me. So you, <laughs> and you come home and you're like, did I just waste my money? And I'm buying old records, too. <laughs> you know, like right. records that are known quantities. Right. And, and I'm sort of like, mm. right. you know, I don't, I don't, you for, 
It's but you, you don't have any more records. I have some, but I don't have. I never. I was never that great at collecting. Maybe because I was never. My tastes kind of kept changing. Mine too, but like I don't look at myself as a collector. In my mind, I'm still just buying stuff I like to listen to. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, like I just gotten a shipment of thirty records that I bought in St. Louis. A lot of jazz records, mm-hmm. actually. And uh, and yesterday I was like, I gotta go over to the record store. To, I'm like, dude, you didn't even. Listen to the ones you just got. Right, right. You got to go get what? Right. What do you got to get? So then you got to question what's happening. (laughs) Well, for me, I realized it was less about acquisition and more about curiosity. Right. It was more like, okay, okay, this punk rock and like what's happening in this punk scene there. And then beyond a certain point, it was like, well, what's happening in the techno clubs or like what's happening in the world of hip hop or what's happening in But you weren't thinking that then. No, but over the next few years and the thing- But who were your punk people? Who were your bands? Who were you loyal to? Like what was the ones that sort of like, I got to get all of these? Well, I mean, I think, you know, bands like Dead Kennedys were very influential to me, but it was it was a wide range of stuff from like Minor Threat to like Japanese noise music to all sorts of stuff. Uh, well, earlier than that, more like boredoms, yeah. and there was a whole kind of subgenre where it was actually pretty close to just static. Like I wanted the weirdest <laughs> stuff you could find. That's so funny because for me, when I was a kid, and I had a friend at the record store next door who turned me on to like Fred Frith, mm-hmm. and like to me or the Residents, mm-hmm. that was the equivalent to yeah, that. Absolutely, for me. absolutely. Yeah. And and but again, the thing about punk is it's a very unstable way to think about the world because once you start thinking like I want bands that bands should define the rule should defy the rules of how music is made no matter how right yeah. yeah but then the next step is like well who says bands should be defiant right like, who made that rule right and and so and so you so then you're being dragged back to the stones well yeah then you're then you're gravitating towards other things that defy rules in other ways and I yeah. remember I remember going to a dance hall reggae concert that blew my mind because of the the energy and the chaos of yeah. it and um, I got I got started to get obsessed with hip-hop and started to hear the kind of audacity of hip-hop and started to really fall in love with that um, I started to fall in love with R&B and hearing some of the production in modern R&B you know stuff that Tim was doing um, and this know, is all when you were in your teens this is this is later this is you know maybe when I'm 20 21 so where'd you go to college I went to Harvard that's fancy it's a fancy college and it had a very fancy radio station where they were obsessed with punk rock where, yeah. where you have to take a semester long you have to take an exam what were you studying I was studying comparative literature but were you doing anything like a minor in music or they don't have that? No, I was doing music thing. just like on the side. I was doing, I was at this radio Comparative station. Comparative literature. Is that Henry Gates? Uh, yeah, I, I worked on his uh, academic journal, which oh, was yeah? called Transition, which was a journal of race and culture. Uh-huh. But but especially in the early years, I just wanted to like do radio shows and organize Post punk them? shows. Yeah. And, and you organize uh, punk shows? You yeah, produce them? Yeah, we're part of like a crew of people who like, you know, have some band play in the basement of a health food store Would or you bring them in? The band? Sometimes you mean bring them into where? To like, were you booking concerts? Yeah, I mean, I, booking sound, makes it sound more but, fancy than but, it was. But with punk rock, you know, they kind of need people to yeah. sort of find them a place. So, yes. like, what kind of bands? Who were they? And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't the ringleader, but I recently was going through my old stuff and found a flyer for a Rhode Island band called Drop Dead. This oh yeah, kind of furious like animal rights hardcore <laughs> band. Did you know Dung Beetle? Uh, I've heard of Dung. Be- yeah. I heard of Dung Beetle on your show probably for the first side. time. Yeah, Lipside Lipside band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but I realized so. Yes, I was doing kind of all that stuff, yeah. and it was, I was working in record stores, and I was I was that Which was record store. 
Uh, let's see. The first one I worked at was Discount Records uh-huh. in Harvard Square. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I worked at uh, Pipeline Records, uh-huh. um, which my friends owned. I spent a year working in the warehouse of Newbury Comics Records. I took a year off from Harvard yeah. to spend a year working in the warehouse of Newbury Comics. As a, as a learning thing? Uh, just because that was all I cared about. Music was all I cared about. Was it about. still on vinyl or that was CD time? That was CD time. My job was to put stickers on CDs, uh-huh. like price stickers. So you saw everything coming in. Yeah, I remember the day there was a Red Hot Chili Peppers album that came out. I think the yeah. One Hot Minute, the one with Dave Navarro on yeah. it. Yeah. And I remember that because all I did from nine to five that day was just put stickers on that CD. <laughs> <laughs> non-stop but it was great like it's a big record i guess there was a warehouse stereo yeah. and like so you know you got to hear what your fellow workers were into and like it was just another way to be around music so what disciplines did you learn because like in reading the book mm-hmm. i realized that the amount of reading that you had to do like there had to be an approach to this thing mm-hmm. and it seems that you wrote you read a tremendous amount of biographies and autobiographies mm-hmm. of people within all of these genres yeah and and media coverage from the time so that so you like in setting up to do the research of a history of popular music, <laughs> you, you know, like what what were you drawing from in terms of your experience in organization? Was it something you learned? Did you, you have to whiteboard it? No, I didn't whiteboard. I mean, I think, you know, I've been so I, I eventually became a pop music critic at the New yeah. York Times. So you've and been then, writing about music. Yeah. A long and then time. went to the right. New Yorker where I've been for I guess 13 years now. Right. So the research element was second nature. Yeah. And I think so. I think over the course of those years, hopefully I learned how to get a little better at telling a story. I don't wanted this book to feel like a series of stories, not like a encyclopedia. Well, I thought it was interesting that you sort of basically open with grand funk, you know, <laughs> out of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Out of anything, mm-hmm. and this is like this is a band that because I'm I'm in the vinyl hole, right? And I remember Grand Funk when I was a kid, right? Because I, I you know I grew up in that time, but uh, you know I'm trying to reassess them as a band. But right. your basic example in terms of the rock part, the rock and roll part of this is that. They're important because they were a band no one gave a shit about, but they were huge. Right. And it's kind of the, it kind of creates this crisis of faith among a certain number of people who love and write about rock music. Right. Which is like, is this even our genre anymore? Like, what does rock and roll even mean? Like, we thought rock and roll was cool, but like, maybe now rock and roll is popular and not that cool. Uh-huh. And maybe this idea that we take for granted today, that there's going to be bands that are beloved by the critics and bands that are selling out arenas, and maybe those won't be the same bands... That was kind of a new idea back then. Right. But and then you're able to sort of like, you know, move through, you know, kind of pick up towards towards the end of the 60s and on into the 70s and how these these genres struggle to uh, maintain relevance. But like so much of it is rarely, it seems, on the conscious part of the artists. And it more becomes about that relationship with the actual labels themselves. Yeah, it's a bit of both, right? I mean, one of the things about genres and one of the ways in which you can think about genres is you can rebel against them, right? Right. You can be a country singer who's like, hell no, I'm not putting a string section on my album. You can be a country singer who says, no, I'm not going to use Nashville studio musicians. I'm going to use my touring band, Yeah, right? But those decisions, even by making those decisions, you're rebelling against country music, but you're also showing that you're part of that community. Because if you're a different kind of artist, you never even think about string sections and studio musicians. That that line in there about country and that like it's really it's sort of like being Jewish. It's like you don't have to be religious to be Jewish. It's an identity. So if you're Jewish, you're Jewish, really. It's same with country. It's like right. it doesn't that matter. Was, that was Dolly Parton's thing, right? Yeah. And Dolly Parton was going to be country even when she was making disco records. Right. It didn't matter. She yeah, was going to because she's country. And that's an interesting period. way to think about country, right? Because right. that means 
one of the things that means is it's like kind of a closed society. Like mm-hmm. if you're not born into it, you're not in it. Right. But at the same time, that means there's like a certain amount of freedom. That right. Once you're in it, you can do whatever. And that's actually turns out to be true in a lot of genres. I, I think about, I talk about this with hair metal mm-hmm. and the hair metal bands, their whole thing was like, we look super rock and roll. We're right. the most rock and roll. Yeah. But like for a lot of them, their big hits were power ballads. Well, that was always the weird thing about Alice Cooper. You, you know, Alice right. Cooper is that like most of his hits, a lot of them are kind of sweet. Right. <laughs> you know, and yeah. he's like, this is a guy that was like best friends with Bernie Taupin. Right. And, and, you, and so if you look the part and act the part, yeah. sometimes you have more freedom to do other stuff that isn't traditionally what people do. You see that in country music today, where you see these songs that are like about people are singing, I'm really country, I'm the countryist, I like to do country stuff. And they'll be rapping or they'll be doing it with with a beat. And the idea is my identity is cultural. Therefore, I have more freedom to explore different kinds of music. But then there's always within it. It's it must be so hard to do a book like this because there are these movements within it. There's been several different times where like new country or alt country or, you know, whatever's happening now with Sturgill and Margot and and right. and that crew. Casey Musgraves. Yeah. That mm-hmm. there's a, a, a kind of uh, you know, resurgence of, of outlaw country country format sure right yeah, and, and even the and even the outlaw country thing right turns out to be this this weird hybrid because it's it's not exactly a revival because it doesn't exactly sound like any of the records that came before no i think it was a completely sort of weird it, you know time appropriate integrity they were trying to to capture that there was something about that time right the, the early 70s where these guys like willie and Waylon were like they didn't want to to make those kind of like horn-oriented Nashville-driven records because right. it, it didn't speak to what was happening. Right. And and, and that was an, a di- another way of being country. And one of the ironies is that over the years, a lot of the biggest country acts have defined themselves by saying like, I'm not like those Nashville guys. Right. 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 Like George Strait comes along, right? Yeah. After that. And he's like, I'm not like this stuff. I'm doing real, pure, straight ahead country, not like this Nashville stuff. Well, it's interesting because I, I don't know how many people know uh, about that sound or why that still holds up as this mythic sort of uh, pushback. Mm-hmm. But like they're, that generation of guys, George Strait's generation of guys. Where, you know, that was pretty country. Yes, it was country <laughs> but in a different sense. Even Reba McIntyre comes yeah. out and her whole thing is like, I'm not going to give you this polished, smooth stuff they're doing in Nashville. Right. I'm going to give you something else. And it's then done in Nashville, though. Well, yeah. And 10 years later, <laughs> Garth Brooks comes along talking the same way, saying, well, Nashville's kind of lost its way. I'm going to give you some real country music. So it's a mythic Nashville. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's a little bit like the way uh, politicians talk about Washington, right? Sure. Like these people in Washington yeah, are right. like, dude, you've been in the That's Senate right. for 20 years. That's right. Like I could never lock into Garth Brooks and I don't follow country that much but i do have a lot of old country records i did watch the ken burns Mm -hmm. you know series which was amazing right yeah in terms of laying that out but like what did you in in investigating like you use uh rock r&b and country as you know that's you're laying the groundwork with that and then you move into punk hip-hop and dance i but it popped was that another one Pop, yeah, pop is the the seventh genre. It might not even be a genre at all. It's kind of hard to it's hard to tell. My my contention, I I dropped off at dance. <laughs> my contention is that pop music sort of you know it's used as a catch all term and it's used as kind of a negative term. Right. Like you're pop if you don't belong to any other community. Right. Or you're pop if you've left your community. You but used th- to be an R and B act and now you've gone pop. I guess so, but it seems like you you know like these these labels sometimes it's just semantics because mm-hmm. you know pop runs through all of it yes you know from the beginning but if you're but if you're the carpenters in uh-huh. the 70s yeah it's not merely semantic that 
a big part of their identity and a yeah. big th- part of what they thought about was that they weren't rock and roll and they weren't considered rock and roll. Okay. And sometimes they tried to push back by, you know, putting an electric guitar solo on the sure. album. Sometimes in interviews, Richard Carpenter was like really bummed out about this. Yeah. And, like, we're cool just like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you guys viewing us as just a pop act? <laughs> yeah. And so it really does shape a lot of times the way people make music, even if they don't think it does. And yeah. what you see in the 80s kind of for the first time is a bunch of artists I talk a lot about Boy George but a bunch of these British artists really waving the flag for pop and saying we're pop acts we're not rock and roll acts in fact they're saying rock and roll is lame it's old it's tired it's played out pop is cool it's new it's shiny it's fun and we're gonna reject rock and roll and be pop right and and that that turned out to be so not all of those bands turned out to be super popular right if we talk about abc and Stritty politi Hair, and haircut 100 haircut 100 and, yeah but thompson that, twins but that way of thinking turned out to be really influential um, yeah really influential to this idea of rockism this idea that like maybe there's a different way to think about music maybe, maybe how do you define rockism rockism is taking the ideals of rock and roll yeah. and, and applying them to all the other genres. Right. So the idea is that if you're a pop singer or an R&B singer or something else, you're cool insofar as what you're doing feels like rock and roll. Yeah. So, right, is, is it, you <laughs> so know, is it- feeling? Well, yeah, it, it, it's it's treating that feeling like the, the supreme thing. You mean like rock star? Well, even those values of rock yeah. and roll and applying them everywhere. Which so the idea what? that music should be kind of scruffy, should right. be kind of raw, okay. should be kind of loud, yeah. should be kind of rebellious, right. right? Yeah. And and the question that you ask is like, well, what about music that's like kind of clean, kind of yeah. slick, yeah. kind of fun, right? kind of friendly? Right. And, and one of the ideas of this idea of rockism is that if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for like Bruce Springsteen's everywhere sure. you look, <laughs> you might miss Anita Baker and Luther Vandross, right? You might miss these amazing, incredibly smooth black R&B records. Well, I mean, I think that 80s. your separation is important, though, too, because, y- you know, the whole kind of evolution of R&B and, you know, and it's sort of uh, the, the, the kind of movement from race records, mm-hmm. right? As they used to be called. Yeah. yeah that... And and then the sort of struggle to uh, for R and B's identity through mm-hmm. people like Barry Gordy and and then through people who who are, who are sort of anti Gordys right in terms of like you know that I didn't realize there was an argument around sort of like why you got to make this for white people right yes that's you know, kind why of the, betray us that's kind of the central argument around, in R and B yeah and and you know there's this moment I think in 1981 where Billboard renames its R and B chart it renames it Black Music yeah. Is, isn't that, isn't that the same as race records? To, yeah, to kind of, right? Right, yeah. And people don't know exactly how to feel about that. Because in one sense, you're kind of, are you saying that like this is, is this just segregation? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Right. Or in another sense, you could think of black music as an inclusive term. Meaning like, okay, what, what's playing on these radio stations isn't just R&B. Like, it might be jazz. It might be a little bit of hip hop. It might be something that's even closer to easy listening. So, right. So in a way, you can think of black music as an inclusive term, but it's For, also a very exclusive way of thinking yeah but i it, it's interesting it really depends on you know w- what uh, point of view you're coming from in the sense that you know if you're black and and want it to be identified as black music in an almost fuck you way thank you right but right. if you're you're black and and is looking to expand the audience you're like what are you doing right and especially yeah. and this is where it gets also in america yeah 12% of the population is black. Yeah. So the existence of black music as a genre where listeners and musicians are disproportionately black 
means that you'll also have white genres. Sure. Which is So like can we how do we think about that? Can we can we is it possible to celebrate white music as white music? Is it possible? Uh, I, I don't I, right now, I don't know. Well, in other words, like when you look at I, white music, I think most people assume country, right? But is there's pretty there's, white and rocky to a degree. There's a desire for yeah. sometimes in those discussions that those genres should be more integrated. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, but it's but it's one of those things that like everything should be more integrated. Well, should it? But well, should black music be more integrated? Let me let me rephrase it. Is that when? Uh, in, in in when people say that, mm-hmm. like even in the sense of like, you know, having friends or diversifying entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that writer's rooms should be more inclusive and mm-hmm. that the people working in, in film and television should represent what the population looks like just on an employment level. Mm-hmm. But there does come to a point where, where you're like, well, this isn't my life. Mm-hmm. So on that level, you know, you can't send out applications for more diverse friends after a certain right. point it's just right. you have you can feel the way you're going to feel and, and appreciate what's happening right. but you can't, you can't diversify your life after a certain point without it looking weird well there's also the reality of yeah. black people in in this case being a minority so any is so if a genre if the audience and the musicians if a genre kind of looks like america and is diverse in that sense yeah that means that black people will be a minority. No, like I, I think that you're correct. I don't think that that those need to be diversified. Right. I think that these are identities, and they're driven by you know cultural identity and by community identity, and also by musical identity. And you know you put them all together as separate things, and you can sort of see the the fabric of America. But no, I don't think that you there needs to be more white drummers. Well, but what I'm saying is that's kind of what you get, right? Yeah. If black people are disproportionately drawn to quote unquote black genres, both yeah. as musicians and as listeners, yeah. then you're going to have non-black people disproportionately disproportionately drawn to some non-black genres. Like you don't get one without the other. Yeah, but is that a problem? Well, that's the question. When you look at country music, yeah. is it a problem that country music is white music? Is it a problem that rock and roll comes to be perceived as white music? Well, you know, it's weird. Is that at some different points in all of these genres, it seems that they kind of want to be more black. So, some of them. I mean, again, rock and roll is self-conscious about this, right? Yeah. Like the Rolling Stones and bands in the 70s are yeah. self-conscious about the fact that they're not blues guys. Yeah. You know, I, I, I write... But they love the blues guys. Yeah, and yeah. I, I write about how you can hear Brown Sugar, right? This this crazy song about kind of interracial sex and slavery, maybe. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. But maybe it's a song about like white English guys who hear black music and their blood runs hot, right? right. Maybe it's a song about the Rolling Stones being self-conscious about their position as white I English. I always thought it was a song about like a slave ship uh, captain fucking uh, right. a slave woman. But I'm saying I'm saying in that yeah. you can hear it as like the Rolling Stones or those slave ship captains. I guess so. I, I, I guess if you read into it, I mean, there is... But you make a sort of interesting case around a lot of the language of some of these songs, you know, not only in rock and roll, but in, in rap as well, that, you know, do you, you know, is it a point of contention when mm-hmm. these things seem, you know, insensitive and that's being uh, fairly diplomatic? Yeah. But again, that's related to that's related to the unfriendly thing I, I, I was hoping to do in this book, which was sort of make a case that at least in music, there's a lot of upsides to di- division, yeah, not just not just diversity, but divisiveness. Right. The fact that the fact that certain songs, certain bands, certain genres 
are kind of repulsive in a literal sense. They're, yeah. they're pushing certain people out. And th that's what helps create the kind of diversity of the musical landscape. And, and those of us, people like me, people like you who love listening to a bunch of different genres, yeah. those different genres only exist because other people before us cared enough to really be devoted to a thing but right and it's but i think also you're speaking just sort of a ba uh, like a premise that's been around for a while that if if there is relatively healthy competitiveness amongst artists that's how the art evolves or yeah. or breaks off yes but and usually that competitiveness happens in some sense within genres or yeah, subgenres sure. right you have to you have to care enough about death metal so that you can get really into discussions of like different guitar tones and you're drawing from things in death metal that an outsider wouldn't necessarily hear yeah, but that's you know that and that intensity is really exciting for music nerds of of all of that ilk but for non-nerds tend to enjoy that intensity too right yes. in other words like even you don't have to be super into the history of hip hop and battle rapping to watch 8 mile and like fall in love with Eminem. In fact, like the sure, moment it's a story. And and part of what people responded to when they watched Eight Mile and heard Lose Yourself yeah. was Eminem's intensity about rapping. Like they didn't want to be rap nerds, but they love that Eminem is a rap nerd. Yeah. And 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 that's appealing. That that intensity I think is appealing to us even if we don't want to take the plunge and go deep into right. any well, particular genre. Right. Well, I mean, that's also his character. Right. Right. So I mean, and it's pretty clear in the book that all these artists, once there's a, a shift in how the music is evolving, will make an attempt to to change with it. And I yes, think some of the more absolutely. tragic attempts are around hair metal guys going for the <laughs> grunge look. Also, when you realize that uh, you know it's just show business. Well, yeah, for so many people. Yeah. And and I think I think it's easy to write. I think, you know, this book unapologetically talks about charts and success and sales because I think it's easy to write that stuff out and to imagine that musicians are existing in a bubble and they're just expressing their se themselves and whatever happens, happens. And, you know, I think the business part of show business is really important. You had um, my former, I was at the, the Times for six years. Um, ben Ratliff was one of my colleagues, just like I know that one of the most careful and like intelligent listeners I've ever come across. Jazz guy. Jazz guy. But I he can listen to, to no, yeah. I, I heard your conversation yeah. and he can listen to any, not just jazz, like you give him a metal record and he'll like, he'll hear some stuff. Yeah. It. Oh, really? And Ben Ratliff has, has written about how genres yeah. are kind of a record company plot. They're okay. kind of the thing that the industry yeah. uses to try to sell us music. Right. And I think I agree with that. But my question is, not all plots succeed. Right. And <laughs> why have genres succeeded? Like, why do people respond to that? Why, and, do people, why do people wave the flag for hip hop the way they do? Why do people even now write songs, country songs, about being country? Well, well, what do you make of that? Is it a tribal thing? It's a tribal thing. It's a community thing. And, yeah. and, and part of the reason we listen to music is for that sense of community. Right. And, you know, part of what genre gives you is this idea that there's a whole bunch of people thinking about some of the same stuff I'm thinking about. Right. And that doesn't mean we can't go outside of those limits. But one of the things I've noticed throughout the 50 years that this book covers is there's always these moments when it feels like genres are disappearing. Yeah. And people are saying, man, can't we all just like come together and break down the boundaries and musical freedom, Yeah, right? And yeah. you see that like in the late 70s in the disco era where it seems like everything's going disco and right. Rolling Stones disco and Star Wars disco and Bee Gees disco and Dolly Parton disco and like maybe this is just what music sounds like now, right? Yeah, but but didn't isn't that like as an example so clearly a profit-driven thing? It's profit driven, but it's also kind of cool. The idea that the idea that you can have that kind of diversity on the dance floor 
is really cool. The idea that like Diana from Ross, the beginning the of disco that, that you know the way it started was diversity. But in even a way. even the idea that Diana Ross yeah. and the Rolling Stones, right. who were kind of considered part of the same genre when Diana Ross was in right. the Supremes, and they were right. all considered part of the rock and roll explosion of the mid '60s. Sure. Then they kind of diverge. And by the late 70s, Diana Ross and the Rolling Stones are like making disco records Well, it's again. a groove, right? Yeah. So it's really just sort of like we're, you know, we're a band, we're musicians. Yeah. This is the groove. It's bringing people together. And there's something really inspiring about that. But somehow the Stones did it specifically Stonesy. <laughs> of course. Well, they do everything <laughs> specifically Stonesy. But, you know, it's sort of interesting when I really think about it. Because I don't like, a, like Diana Ross as a performer, as a singer, you know, her style is relative to her. But whereas the Stones, I mean, you know, Charlie's got to lay into that goddamn yeah. beat. Yes, he does. And, <laughs> Yes, he does, and and it doesn't sound like like even listening to some girls that the the disco songs on that album or on Emotional Rescue, like they don't sound like disco songs to me. No, but you can tell that they're all kind of part of this moment, and you yeah. can understand why there was this worry among some people in the late seventies and into the eighties that these genres were disappearing. Right, there's a worry that like. Look, with with Michael Jackson and Prince being as popular as they are, maybe like R and B is just gonna like dissolve into pop music. Right. And and what keeps happening is that those moments of coming together tend to be followed by moments of backlash and yeah, moments of people saying, like, no, I don't wanna be like you. I don't wanna listen to what you're listening to. But those to. are new artists, right? right? Those are artists that are sort of like, fuck this. Right. This is what I'm about. This is what I came up in. This is my world. Yeah. And we're gonna take it back. And and I feel like we're living through one of those moments now we're where in, genre starts to seem kind of old fashioned and like, isn't it all just one music and like Lil Nas X and Post Malone, but like isn't that they're all making kind of similar sounding stuff. But, and, but isn't that also relative to the way we hear music? Yeah. I mean, like, Absolutely. you know, like so much of this, this book, like I didn't know any of that stuff about the Philadelphia sound because I'm an idiot or, or the stations that were defining mm -hmm. or that station that defined that. Uh, the smooth quiet soul. storm, yes, yeah. Howard University, yeah, right. DC. That that these were the you know, labels paid attention to that and formats, mm -hmm. you know, were driven by personalities who made decisions. Yeah. So now when you know it's unclear how everyone's really getting their music, right? You Streaming know, and yes, however, or even serious radio, mm -hmm. but but. That as an entity, the mm -hmm. idea of satellite radio, you know, that is, that's what's, you know, how, how does that make everything not seem the same? Right. And that, that's what a lot of people are wondering in this moment. Mm. And I don't, you know, if I were better at like predicting the future and predicting hits, I'd be a record executive. Right. I'm, I'm very much not. But I do observe that throughout history, those moments when everyone comes together are the moments when some other people start to get frustrated or angry or disgusted and say, I don't want to be listening to the same stuff you're listening to. But, but, but that always seems genre specific still too. I mean, cause where else is there left to go on some level? Like if, what do you mean? Well, I mean like, it seems like every turn is sort of turned, you know, musically in terms of, of rock is or hip hop is in, in that it really becomes about nuance that's going to change. It, it can seem like that within genres, but I don't think that anyone thought at the dawn of the night at the dawn of the 1980s, you might have thought the same thing. I don't think anyone would have predicted the trajectory of hip hop or the sure. trajectory of techno. Right. 
in at the dawn of the 1980s, it might have seemed like, oh, we've kind of done everything. We've had progressive rock. Now we have synthesizers and everyone's kind of getting together in these electronic grooves. And that's it. We're out of we're out of music. Well, it seems that that what what ultimately happens is somebody decides to go back and reconfigure what was what was. That's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is technology. Yeah. And, And a third thing that happens is just that, like, humans are inventive. And so when there are communities of people they find stuff to do that doesn't sound like other communities. Right. Well, I guess like I guess what it, what's throwing me is that when it comes down to community definition or the art that comes out of a particular genre that there's always individuals doing out there shit mm-hmm. that that you know is beyond anything that's happening. Right. And you're sort of like, "Wow, that's he's out at the edge of it." But that's just one guy mm-hmm. or one woman or one artist. Right. It doesn't become a community standard. Right. So like my hip hop understanding or the albums that I do have are pretty standard. Do you, you know what I mean? But I know that there was you know, just reading about that. There was an argument about auto tuning that <laughs> which makes sense, right? You know, and technology was makes sense. Jay Z releases Death of Auto Tune, saying yeah. that basically all these auto tune vocals are sort of like ruining hip hop, and it's time to get back to quote unquote real hip hop. Right? Where are we at now? Well, now we're at this moment when hip-hop is kind of... It, sometimes it feels like it's dissolving a little bit. There's a lot of... The, the line between singing and rapping is getting really blurry. I noticed that. And then also, like, what's with these guys? Like, and I... Like, again, like, it's all new to me, the history of hip-hop in your book. Like, I don't... I don't... I'd have to... I have to go back and... I didn't know a lot of the songs. Not because, like, like I'm some sort of, like, you know, dumb white person. It was just never my music. I mean, I have more soul records than I have hip-hop records because... I would check in with hip hop. Like right. if someone says, you got to listen, you know, I've got all the, the early Kanye stuff and Jay-Z and even some, like, I actually have the Ghetto Boys for some, like there were times <laughs> where I'm like, I've got to listen to this stuff, right. but I never locked into it right. with my heart, you know, and it, it's not a uh, race driven thing. It's just a music style. But that's what, one of the things I learned when I had this ridiculous and ridiculously fun job as a music critic for the New York Times, right? Yeah. Which is, again, it's absurd, right? The idea that you're going to be in the newspaper right. a few times a week telling yeah. Everyone, which records are good? Sure, like, sure. It's a really sure, weird yeah. job. But one of the things I learned, two things I learned. One was that no matter what I thought I was into, there was someone out there who was a real expert, and that was never going to be me. Like you know, I could is that true? I could be like really into death metal, but there's someone who does nothing but death metal every day. Yeah, but that for but that, decades. But your job there's is, someone who lives so deep into it. I know, but that but you are you are a contextualizer, right? That's right. your job. So that was the other thing I learned was like if I'm interested in something. You know, I can learn about it. And mm. I think that anyone who cares about music will care about some stuff more than they care about other stuff. Like, that's fine and normal. So all I'm, what I'm trying to do in the book is just try to explain, like, here's the appeal of this kind of music to these people who love it. And no, here, I, here's why some other people love this stuff. And none of us will ever love it all or, or should even want to love it all. Right? Of course. To, to love everything would mean that you had actually no musical taste at all. Right. I mean, it's just passive. But no, but I also think what you do is you choose your people to drive your story right. about what defines these genres. Right. And I think you did a very good job with that because, Thanks. you know, like <laughs> now I have to reassess, mm-hmm. you know, that period of R&B, mm-hmm. you know, that that became that kind of smooth thing like i and i get it but like and have i you, have you listened to the smoky robinson quiet storm album no that's amazing it is yeah it's really yes because it it's like another 
it shows you kind of another path for R and B, right? And and it, you know, coming on the heels of you know these years of stacks and volt and, and 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 stuff getting kind of gritty. Yeah, I have that stuff. You hear like you see this album like on the cover, Smokey Robinson is kneeling next to a horse. Yeah, like what? This, <laughs> like what's going on? <laughs> and this was a, a big shift. Yeah, yes, and it was just yes, and it was it was a different way to think about this. Like here's a different way R and B could provide pleasure, uh-huh. not by being kind of bluesy and greasy, but by being sort of smooth and refined and you know I think as a musical value that's an example of the kind of thing that if you think about music through rock and roll it's easy to sort of um, to put that to the side and 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 one of the reasons why it's worthwhile thinking about genres is because sometimes it can help you identify your blind spots right it can help you identify like not just the country music that sounds like Waylon Jennings but like the Shania Twain records of sure, the 1990s, the, the Lang records, which sound like they were made in a lab by right. a robot, yeah, who 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 liked rock, who liked rock and all sorts of stuff, right? At right. a certain point, she releases, I believe it's up in yeah. three different versions. There's yeah. the pop version, the country version, and the world music yeah, version. That's just that's money. That's money, but it's a it's a fascinating phenomenon. I guess and, so. And it's a moment of people saying like. Again, asking this question like, well, what is country? If you're Shania Twain and you're, you know, a woman from Canada, no particular accent. It's George Jones, man. It it is also George Jones. (laughs) But if it's just George Jones, then it becomes... Then it becomes something in a museum, right? The no, reason, I get it. The I reason get it. people still fight about country in a way that they don't necessarily fight about some other genres is that it keeps changing. I mean, but the funny thing is, is like there was that period where, you know, the Birds and, and Graham Parsons mm-hmm. and Emmy Harris and all those people yeah. you know, were just shunned by country. Oh, yeah. And, even, and, even the Eagles didn't get uh, a lot of country airplay in yeah, the 70s. And, and then everything that they did has been integrated into country. Sure. Emmy Lou Harris goes on to have country hits in the 80s. And even now, um, you know, one of the, the biggest country album of the year is probably by this guy, Morgan Wallen. Mm. And it's a double album. It's drawing from rock. It's drawing from hip hop, all sorts of stuff. Um, but it's very culturally country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of got, you know, that got heightened when he's caught on camera earlier this year. Um, oh, that guy. Talking to his friends and uses yeah. the N-word. Yeah. And so he gets kicked off of country radio for right. a, a few months. Yeah. But his country fan base yeah. never, never yeah. abandons him. And that's a good example of how musically... That audience is totally happy to hear him using hip hop beats and drawing from these other modern yeah, genres, yeah. but culturally, they're claiming him as one of their own, and th- that's an example of how these divisions. And he's just hoping it's not because he said the N word. Well, yeah, I mean, again, I try to be more descriptive than prescriptive yeah. in this book. In other sure. words, I try to country music. I've always heard it as world music because this is a place with different values and this is a community that I was not born into. And I'm going to try to like figure out and learn to love this music, which I did and and learn about what's happening in this community. And and sometimes part of the way you get musical diversity is that these communities, it's not just like, Oh, they're different. They like different stuff. It's like, no, these communities can be like at war with each other. These communities can do things that other communities say, this is really screwed up or this is really dangerous or this is really bad. Right. So I think it's important not, to kind of sanitize this and imagine like oh people are just doing different things like no sometimes these are real fights there the way you talk about hip-hop and the way you sort of uh flesh out the uh the the different um you you know things that were conflicting Mm -hmm. in terms of people who wanted a message people who didn't want a message people wanted to be a little easier spoken than people that kind of push the envelope but but the idea that there was something performative and also uh honoring of this sort of uh, language of the community mm-hmm. in terms of even telling those big 
you know, brassy stories about conquest and right. women and right. money and guns was always part of the bullshit. Yeah. And, and there is, I think, especially now, but I think it's a, a, throughout the history of popular music, there is a desire that you hear for musicians to be a little more reasonable, a little more decent. Oh, really? And yeah, right? And like, yeah. And obviously that's a thing that music can do, right? Like that's a thing that like Bruce Springsteen is a good example. Yeah. Seems like a very decent guy. And that's really part of his appeal and part of what makes his music But it's powerful. also manufactured of to course. a certain well, degree. Well, it's all manufactured, right? Well, right. So so you're saying people should make different decisions about their acts. No, no, no I'm, I'm not, not saying you, you're saying that, but that's what it comes down to. Like the, the, the part of the integrity of the gangster rap thing was that, you know, at some point people believed it, you right. know, and, and, sure. and white kids believed it and black kids believed it. And, and, and plausibility and believability remains, I mean, has always been central to hip hop. That That question of like, because you're not singing. Yeah. You're doing something that's more like talking. So yeah. as soon as you open your mouth and start talking, yeah. as you well know, right. you're confronted with this issue of like, who the hell are you? Right. What, why are you talking to me? Yeah. What, what, why should I believe anything you say? Right. And yeah. so because of that, rappers tend to be obsessed with credibility and social standing and showing you or, or finding ways to let you know that they should be believed. And, and Jay-Z does this in a really kind of interesting way where he says, I'm not a rapper. It also was kind of popping my brain a little bit about how that, you, you know, aligning yourself with, with as a brand with other brands became mm -hmm. this sort of like you're winning thing. Right, right. Whereas like, you know, a decade ago, it would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? Right, right. So, you know, that kind of honesty, I, I guess, is of the time. Yes. And, and, and success and realizing ambition uh, is, is now something that is, you know, impressive. Yes. And it's also it's also like a more transparent approach. Right. Like yeah. it, it, the idea was like for a rock and roll band, historically, you don't ever want to like sing a song about like I just fired my manager and Killed hired a new it. manager. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't want to talk about the behind the scenes stuff. Sure. Whereas hip hop is all unless you're fucking off a label. Yes, yes. If you're Sex Pistols singing EMI, then yeah, sure. Yeah. But but hip hop is maybe partly because it has so many more words, or maybe because there is this idea that the guy's sort of talking to you. Yeah. There is this tendency to bring everything in. I just signed this deal. I'm doing this thing. I'm in the studio. Even even the hip hop tradition of introducing yourself. Yeah. Right. I sure. am Wonder Mike. Right. Like, right. Like it's like, well, I'm telling you who I am. I'm I'm introducing myself the way I would if I were giving a speech. And well, it seems like you know, like as those things go, that hip hop in terms of of its ability to to kind of like you know take not chances but to incorporate things it, it almost seems infinite yeah. more than anything else yeah and i and i think you know when you said that 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 hip-hop and usually it's used for jazz or stand-up comedy obviously is a is one of the only true american art forms you know there there it, it seems like those type of things like jazz and stand-up that you know come out of these sort of mixing of traditions but it, it, it in jazz in the same way it seems that there's no end to hip-hop's ability to evolve yes and and sometimes it seems like it's evolving beyond rapping right of like, course yeah which is interesting because like well well if hip-hop doesn't mean rapping like what does it mean how do we how mean, do as we, opposed to r&b as opposed to yeah as opposed to singing yes okay. and, and and you know when you hear you know someone like drake going back and forth between rapping and singing yeah. or you hear someone like future where you're not even sure sometimes or travis scott like is that rapping is that singing these but, lines kind of get get blurred in an interesting way but it seems like that 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 issue 
is still the kind of like is R and B obsolete as right. a defining genre, right? You know, and has hip hop in it eaten it, right? And, and and the answer so far has been no, mm. partly on the musical sense because because hip hop has been still mainly rapping, but also socially because race is still salient. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's what I say in the R and B chapter is that as long as you have black singers who are listened to disproportionately by black people. Yeah. And that that's kind of like a group, a thing you can identify. All ages. Yeah, like, all cause, ages. Because like older black people are sure. going to, you know, be nostalgic and there's still that world. Right. Right. So like so, some of these soul has been integrated into classic hip formats, but there's still a world of music that old black people listen to yeah. that I know nothing about. Right. <laughs> you mean, you're talking about like Frank, soul, Frankie the, Beverly and Mays, that kind of sure. stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, again, there is... I think we're living in a moment where there is a great desire to say like to to say that divisions are kind of bad and to say in this in this society at this moment can't we like come together a little more can't we you know do we have to kind of hate each other this much those divisions yeah. create a certain amount of frustration or a certain mm. amount of right. anger or a certain amount of disdain yeah. like those people over there that we don't hang out with like yeah we can say we ex- respect everyone but deep down like fuck those people, hmm. and I, I think that I think that that impulse is a very human impulse. I think that's a very American impulse, mm. and I think it often lives side fuck by those side. People. Yes, and yeah. I think that lives side by side with this desire for greater commingling and greater acceptance sure. and greater yeah. freedom. Yeah. And I yeah. think like I think in these I think in the history of music and in the history of genres, you see both, and you see this push sure. and pull. There was there was a country song a few years ago by Eric Church called Springsteen, yeah. which was about falling in love with a girl at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Yeah. It was a huge hit in country. And I was like, oh, that's fascinating. Right. Like Springsteen as a signifier sure. of like country identity. Yeah. You know, partly because of the way genres change and because like, right. Springsteen no longer sounds like mainstream music. Now it's sonically, it's closer to country in terms of the guitars mm. and, and some of the other okay. stuff. And then this summer, there was a song by this guy, Aaron Lewis from Stained. He's a, like a rock singer. He's yeah. now a country singer um, called Am I the Only One? It's a kind of like anti-liberal protest song. Huh. And he sings, Am I the Only One Who Stops Singing Along Every Time They Play a Springsteen Song? Huh. So now Springsteen is as a divisive figure within the world of country music. Country saying like, we're country, we're not like that Springsteen guy. Uh-huh. And I, I think that, again, that push and pull, that that wanting to be all listening to the same music, but also liking the idea that we have an identity that sets us apart in some way. Again, I think that's I think that's really that that's something that's hard to eliminate from the human experience or the human listening experience. I, yeah, but like, there's something disconcerting to me and upsetting to me about you know this you know using Springsteen <laughs> as this example of some kind of woke liberal liberal asshole that we've got to push back on. Mm-hmm. That you know because of the culture we're living in and, and how tribal it's become and how shallow it's become. You know, the, I I you know I can't see anything outside of. Uh, the the very seemingly real threat of fascism. Hmm. So I can't, it's hard for me to assess things like that other than like, what the fuck is happening? Ah, see, and that that's your own kind of pushback, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, again, I think certainly in the, the punk rock that converted me to a music obsessive in 1990, it was very tribal and in some ways quite shallow. 
Right. Right. <laughs> Where's punk rock now? Well, it's funny. Punk rock seems to have a resurgence every few years. Yeah. Meaning something slightly different, right? Because one of the ironies was as I was getting into all this punk rock stuff and I hate the mainstream. Yeah. Like a year or two later, Nirvana comes along and like every kid is wearing Doc Martens. Yeah. And like, right. at the time I was annoyed, of course. Yeah. In retrospect, like that's amazing and funny. Yeah. yeah but they, they kind of took it to a different place. Yes. And everyone, you know, and Green Day takes it to a different place and Avril Lavigne and Blink-182. Yeah. And now you have like another resurgence with Olivia Rodrigo drawing from punk records. That's one of the biggest pop records of the year. She's a Disney actress who makes this great sort of punk and pop breakup record well, called so, Sour. Well, it's sort of interesting. So that means you know, it's always been designed for 14-year-olds. Maybe that is. I mean, if, if you can tap into sort of 14-year-old angst and annoyance, uh-huh. uh, there's always going to be a ready supply of people who want to hear that. And some of us are not 14. Right. Uh, yeah, um, right. And you you see you see a crossover now where you see rappers like like this guy MGK reinventing themselves as like punk singers. So so the the kind of eternal return of punk music maybe because of its simplicity. Yeah. Um is something that I definitely would not have predicted when I was getting when I was getting obsessed with it. And the thing that keeps it fresh is that it keeps meaning something slightly different. It, you know, it's not you would think in how we're talking about this book it was 900 pages, but you you got it in, man. You were able to sort of really it's, focus the through lines and you know It's only half that length. It's about 450 pages. It's it's designed to fit nicely on the back of your toilet. <laughs> is it? So no. Oh, can... no, this isn't definitely not a toilet book, is it? It is 450 pages. Huh. So it's not a thousand pages. It's not a thousand pages. And and again, like, I think to me, all this. This is uh, nice paper, I guess, because it doesn't look like 400 pages. No, it doesn't. It's not, not intimidating. That... But yeah. to me, hopefully, it's hopefully that sense of delight comes through because that's been that's been the thing I felt all my life. When I heard punk and then hearing other kinds of music is. I'm just delighted and surprised over and over again. And one of the things that often has been the most educational for me is popularity. Mm. Often I'll hear a song that's super popular and my first reaction will be like, huh, I wouldn't have thought that would be a big hit. Yeah. And then you listen to it again and again, and maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome that sure. you just like give you, in to that, it. Yeah, well, that you're signing up for. Yeah, you're volunteering for it. Yes, yeah. but maybe that's how pop music works partly, of right? Of course. Like is that it sort, of, it sort of grows on you in of this course. slightly insidious yeah, way. Yeah, like there's a lot of stuff that I was like, I don't like that stuff. Right. And then I put myself through it. And eventually it takes, you know, sometimes 30 years after the fact. Well, sometimes you might not even know, right? You might be in the supermarket and some song comes on sure. and you sing along to it. But also you start to make exceptions and you, you know, you're, you're sort of like your ability to appreciate expands. And that's mm-hmm. why I think that as you get older, you know, some music falls off and some music gets deeper. I right. don't know why that is, but I find that there's stuff that I always liked that when I listen to it now, I can, you know, just because of my education or my exposure to other things, other music, like it, my appreciation becomes deeper, which is the best that can happen. But isn't it still, I find that on some level, it can still be related to this question of like, who do you think you are? Hmm. And and by listening to a certain record or yeah. a certain genre, you can become, at least for a moment, sure. the kind of person who listens to that music. Yeah, yeah. It, that's right. I, I I think that's right. But you can still be you, and I you and there's if you're that self conscious about celebrating your ability to listen to a certain type of music, and that you're that guy now. I I don't know if you can talk about that all the time. No, but like, <laughs> yeah. but even if it's not, even if it's not a conscious thing you're doing, you could maybe like sure. you're maybe moving to it, or, yeah, you're, yeah. or you're you're singing it. I or, get it. Yeah, I get it. You're vibing to it. Sure. Yeah. You I might. Get you it. might. You know. Yeah. In the next year, you might become someone who's like obsessed with techno music, and you could be that guy. 
yeah, I don't know. I have found that like I usually because my sense of self is more tenuous than I let on <laughs> that I'm I'm wary of letting myself become that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, I'm not sure that I, I want to. Sur- I don't want to be the techno guy. I think I'm a little old to surrender to techno. Techno's and- old too, so it might, <laughs> it might go together well. But wait, did you never have that sense of that music was helping you form your identity? Of course. Over and over again. I mean, I remember early on the first time, like I got this box of records from the R&B record store that was next to where I worked in high school that they weren't going to play in the store. Right. And so many of those records became sort of essential to me. I mean, Nighthawks at the Diner, Tom Waits' double mm-hmm. live album was in there. And I dressed like Tom Waits as a sophomore <laughs> in high school as best I could. <laughs> You know, like I would definitely base my identity off of certain music, and right. I was and I was definitely excited about being turned on to art rock at, at a young age. Mm-hmm. You know, and sort of thinking of myself as a as an artist, like I was a photographer. So it all sort of coincided. And then I remember there was a guy who had worked at that record store, he took me to his house, and we made a mixtape of all the fucking soul music hmm. that came out during Otis Redding's period, like Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, mm-hmm. uh, Retha, all that stuff. So I would know. You know, and he he hit me to that. And then the other guy there turned me on to Eno and Fred Frith and Robert Fripp and the residents. So I got like because of that place. Right. You know, it it was all defining. Yeah. And so much of that has to do with scarcity. Right. So much of that has to do with like it was hard to hear that stuff. It was hard to be able to afford it if you were a kid and you needed some way in. You needed maybe someone to show you. You needed someone to contextualize it for. Like, you know, if you weren't sitting there listening to a soul station, you know, how was I going to get that? You know, I mean, I did listen to oldies because my dad turned me on to oldies and I was like kind of fascinated with it. But for somebody to sit me down and go, this is this era of what you know you pointed out was when you know it became soul music right so like for that all to be put together for me and to hear how that went like you know it was kind of mind-blowing but and and i I think sometimes there's a fear that because we're living in a post-scarcity era when it comes to music you have all there all the time it's all there all the time i think there's a fear that those musical communities will kind of disintegrate yeah I think the reason we have musical communities is because we love community. And so I think I think there will be new ways to build those communities. And certainly one thing we've learned about the social media era yeah. is it doesn't necessarily always bring us all together. <laughs> like there's there's yeah. ways in which it can exaggerate certain divisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I you know, I I I hope the 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 national discourse uh is somehow kind of um softens and 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 if music is going to be the facilitator that i'm all for it but i think i also think Hmm. that if the national discourse doesn't soften and digs in and these groups become we become everything becomes more divisive and more oppositional we're gonna get some good music out of that not i'm not saying that it's better or worse but i want to hear what those other people are listening to i want to know what those records are yeah, I wonder is do you do you feel like there's new stuff coming out on that side that's defining or 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 sort of uh, buttressing those points of view that is something we don't know about? Well, I think, you know, I I think often the most exciting records tend not to be explicitly political, but I think it's also important to know that music can kind of gain associations and gain identity even after it's released, right? When of course, Morgan, yeah. When Morgan Wallen puts out his record, in some ways it's kind of this inclusive record in a certain way. Yeah. Even though, you know, even though in certain ways it's a little exclusive, he, he, he has a lyric of a beer don't buzz with that hip hop cuz, but it damn sure do to a little nitty gritty, right? Yeah, his idea yeah. is like, he's yeah. maybe drawing a boundary and drawing a distinction even though he happens to be a hip hop fan. 
Then when he's when he's caught uh, on tape saying the N word and he's banished and he kind of comes back, now he's a much more polarizing figure hmm. than he was. Yeah, a year right. Ago. I get it. And I've never listened to one note of his music. It's a good record. Okay, I just got the new Billie Eilish record. I don't. You, know, you like I, it? I do. Do and, you? Uh, I like it. I, I think I like the previous one better. Yeah. But it's it's a it's a that whole phenomenon is fascinating, right? Yeah. And and the idea that. One question that people have is if it's possible for people to become, to kind of seemingly emerge from nowhere and become everywhere, yeah. does that mean that they go back to nowhere quicker too? Maybe, sometimes. Or does that just mean that there's just more stuff yeah. out there? I just, like, I can't, like, you know, I try to keep up. I don't know quite how to keep up. It's not It's not yeah. possible. No one can keep up with everything. Yeah. It's just, and, and, you know, you're kind of picking and choosing and you're hearing something there, hearing something here. Yeah. I think that's always been true. I think now maybe there's, it's easier to imagine that you somehow could keep up with everything. Well, I I've gotten very vinyl specific, so that keeps me somewhat in the past. It's a limiting principle. Yeah. And, and also, but I get new vinyl and, mm-hmm. and I'll listen to it uh, when I can. But uh, all right, so I appreciate uh, the book and thanks for opening my mind or at least give me the information that I needed to to kind of have a little more grounded sense of uh, R&B. One door opens, another door closes, right? (laughs) Kind of, or else they all stay open and then you just get exhausted. (laughs) That's right. Thanks for talking, man. Thanks, Mark. Okay, that was um, Kalifa Sene. The book is called Major Labels, A History of Popular Music in Seven Genres. It's now available wherever you get books. Kelifa Sene. God, I hope that's correct. Now I'll play my new Stratocaster clean with a little wobbly. You know what? You know what? I'm going to I, I got to send some love to the guy that made this thing. Because I know who he is. It's a it's a it's a Fender master built. They make it look old. So they actually have to put more time into it. But the guy who built mine, a Fender Custom Shop master builder, Carlos Ruben Lopez Jr., made a fucking magic guitar. And uh, and uh, and I love it. So there you go. Okay, I'm going to play it now. Monkey and LaFonda. Cat angels are fucking everywhere, man.